And uh, as you might imagine, we're in Luke chapter 2 today and also this coming Saturday night. I know know a lot of you have uh, events planned with family and so forth um, Christmas Eve and hope that you'll be able to still get with us for one of those uh, services, either 5 p.m. or 7 p.m. Look forward to gathering together and rejoicing in God our Savior. Um, I was reading up this week on how uh, the leader of the free world moves, how much it costs when he's on the move, how many people go with him and so forth. And um, if you're a a political wonk, uh, you've probably read about this kind of stuff in the past, how many millions of dollars it takes when uh, the president gets on Air Force One and flies somewhere around the world and how many people are in his entourage and so forth. Uh, just to give you a little bit of an idea what, um, what goes into any movement he does. Let's say he's going to go from the White House to Capitol Hill, which is less than two miles, 1.8 miles. So he, does, he can't just walk out the Rose Garden doors, um, walk down the walk, uh, tell the Marines to open the gate, and I'm going to go just walk down to Capitol Hill. That doesn't happen. Um, what does happen is a um, involves 14 car vehicles. Um, five minutes before the motorcade's going to leave, there's one uh, vehicle, two police officers that um, drives the route, make sure it's clear. In less than a minute before the president's going to leave, there's another police car with uh, two officers in that drives the route as well to make sure it's clear. And then there's another car that pulls out ahead of the motorcade. This is the lead car. Again, uh, has uh, police, Secret Service agents in. And then there's two cars, presidential cars, they call the Beast. One of them contains the president, the other one's a decoy. And then behind that, uh, those two cars, there's the main support car, each with four secret, at least four Secret Service agents in them, carrying their personal weapons as well as machine guns. By, by the way, don't ever try to hit the presidential motorcade. It's not going to end well for you. So behind them, then there's a uh, communications vehicle that takes care of encryption and so forth to make sure that the president, for those 1.8 miles, has secure communications. Uh, There's a hazmat truck in the event of any kind of um, biological or chemical attack that would take place, fully equipped to handle that. Uh, There's another communications vehicle that provides the president with secure, immediate communications anywhere all over the world for, again, those 1.8 miles. There's two cars, probably two, uh, containing journalists that are being driven by Secret Service agents, uh, again, and guarded by them as well. Uh, The the whole crew ends up with an ambulance at the end from, if it's local, if he's out of of town, uh, it's going to be a local um, manned uh, ambulance and the team has had a pass secret service muster and so forth in town they've got a local DC ambulance following at the end but up ahead of the ambulance within the hazmat vehicles and the communication vehicles are two additional vehicles uh, with, with a, um, a doctor full medical kit to handle whatever emergency comes up 14 vehicles to move one man one miles. Now imagine if you're going to move uh, some king or notable 
from one sphere of existence to another sphere of existence. Some of you are tracking with me. Imagine if you're going to go from heaven to earth, the ruler of heaven, leaving heaven and going to earth. What might the entourage look like? What might be required in terms of support for him? Well, most of you know the Christmas story and know there really wasn't any of that. And so let's pray and then read these uh, early verses in Luke chapter 2. Father, we love Christmas, and we love it for a lot of reasons. It's a, a warm and inviting time. It does seem as if people who are cranky become less cranky. Uh, that time of year. It does seem that people who are preoccupied with just making money become less preoccupied with it that time of year. It does seem like there's a lot of kind of simple, um, relational, experiential um, blessings that go with Christmas. And yet we who know the gospel know that you scratch behind those surfacey things and there are far more significant, impactful, eternal implications of Christmas. And this morning as we read uh, this wonderful, glorious, heartwarming story, um, may we catch up a, perhaps a fresh glimpse of not only what was at stake, but what both you and your son willingly complied with in order to um, not just bring your son to earth to do what he did, but to see the message in the way he did it, a message for us today. I pray that you would bind the enemy for our time together and that you would unleash the Holy Spirit at the word of God, the spirit of God might deeply impact our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, took with him Mary, his fiancee, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because, because there was no lodging available for them. I want to try to make the point this morning that the conditions of Jesus' birth put the world on notice that its way was not his way. In other words, how the world operated and how they uh, thought about themselves and, and their existence was not how Jesus was going to operate. We have one king appears in this passage early on, and then we have another king that appears. One king is uh, uh, Octavian Caesar Augustus. And then we have another king, a little baby in a manger. And I want to com 
contrast this morning the prideful king with the humble king. Now, Octavian was um, really Rome's first significant emperor up until Julius Caesar in uh, about 30 BC. Um, Rome had been a republic. It was ruled by a senate, um, similar to our senate in terms of something of representation, but not really. But these were men of power, and the senate was... uh, just kind of like politicians today, each senator was kind of lobbying for his own power in the Senate, and there were um, leaders in Rome that were becoming increasingly concerned that Rome could not sustain itself uh, the way the Senate was tearing itself apart. So Julius Caesar seized power. Uh, He was emperor for just a couple of years, and then if you know the story, he was assassinated by the senators. Following him was this man that's spoken of in Luke chapter 2, Octavian Caesar Augustus. And he had a long rule, about 40 years, and took power about 27 B.C. And he would establish Rome as an empire that lasted for several hundred years. Senate was still in play, uh, still given some role, but not uh, certainly not the, the main power that resided with Augustus. And so he declared that they're going to do a census. Now, why do you do a census? Every couple of years, uh, we do that here in the States, and there are a lot of reasons, there are a lot of ways the government and other agencies use that data that's gathered. But the primary reason for a census in ancient times was so that you could know where everybody was and where they came from for purposes of taxation, and that's probably what this one was about. Now, I'm going to go down a side road just for a minute that I think is valuable. And it's about something that you may know nothing about and may not care about, but I think there's a, uh, it's important for us to um, not be naive. And that's in verse 2 of Luke 2. It's one of the most debated issues in all of New Testament scholarship because historically it doesn't add up. What I mean by that, it talks about Quirinius being a governor in Syria, and he declared this census. There's two problems in the line. One, we have no historical record of a census taking place about the time Jesus was born. And two, Quirinius was not governor of Syria. And so scholars have looked at this down through the ages for many, many years and said, Luke got it wrong. That's the only thing they can conclude. Luke got it wrong. And these, these are scholars not only who are uh, hostile to the Bible, but scholars who um, believe at least portions of the Bible. Um, so here's, let me try to give you some confidence in the Word of God. First of all, pretty much everything else that Luke has written has been verified, both in Acts and Luke, has been borne out by uh, archaeological discoveries in the last 150 years. He has proven himself time and time again to be a historian without peer. And so when you come to something like this, you ought to say, maybe we shouldn't have the jury render their verdict yet. Just maybe five years or 15 years down the road or 100 years down the road, he's going to be proven to be right. Let me give you uh, just a couple other pieces of background for this. If you go back to Matthew and you read the story about the uh, Herod um, killing the baby boys in Bethlehem, Matthew chapter uh, 1, this is partly how we track the date line of Jesus' birth. 
If Herod was alive when Jesus was born, and we know pretty much that Herod died at 4 B.C., and Herod gave his soldiers instructions that they were to kill all the babies two years old and younger, which suggests that when um, Herod sent his soldiers out to do that, it might have been as late as two years after Jesus was born. Then we can backtrack Jesus' birth to probably about 6 B.C., and again, no historical record of a census then, no historical record that Quirinius was governor of Syria. What we do have evidence of is a census about 6 or uh, 8 BC, uh, AD, so about 10 years later. And we have Quirinius being in a, at least a role that would be similar to governor, uh, again, about that time. And so the argument is Luke screwed up. He's off by 10, 12 years, something like that. Well, a couple of things. One, we do find some records of more regional and local census in the Roman Empire at different places at different times. In fact, there is one about somewhere between eight, uh, 6 and 8 BC that was taking place that could have well been uh, in Judea and area. Now, the other thing is that Quirinius was, it wasn't as if he was an unknown person at the time of Jesus' birth. He was indeed involved in the empire. He had the trust of Augustus. Um, he had had some success in a number of areas, and it's quite possible that he had a role in Syria in the days when Jesus was born that was not quite the governorship. In fact, it's interesting, Luke doesn't even use the Greek word for governor. He has a, another political name for him. And so it might well been that he, he was uh, some kind of, uh, he had responsibilities as an advisor or to carry out certain projects and so forth. Um, all of this to say um, that we should not be too quick to say the skeptics are right and Luke, the Bible writer, is wrong. Obviously, one of the things that comes into play here is if we conclude that Luke messed up, it tampers with, understandably and should, our confidence that this is God's, ultimately God's word, that it came from the heart of God to men, but his character and his nature, i.e. perfective perfection and truth uh, would not be reflected if Luke got this wrong. Um, I think that one of the reasons that God had um, things that we could check out through the historical record included in the Bible is to provide some authentication and credentials to the Bible that it's trustworthy. You can count on it. Is he going to, has he provided enough that we can say without any um, bit of skepticism that it's there's nothing that can't um, can't be proven no he's not going to give us that why without faith it is impossible to please God in other words if we could prove everything it wouldn't require faith it would be like this uh, for, foregone conclusion let me take you to a verse here in Luke chapter 10 before we move on uh, because I think this is of value Jesus after he had sent out his disciples um, on, a, on their first mission. And they came back and to, told him how effective they had been able to be and how people had responded to the preaching and so forth. Uh, verse 21 says, at that same time, <clears throat> Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And he said, oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding, don't miss that word, for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. 
I'm, I'm guessing that many of us have had an, uh, a chance to s talk with somebody about Christ and they have been so skeptical. They just, they just tune it out. Uh, they say that you don't have any proof of this. And, and we wonder to ourselves and maybe even pray this, God, why wouldn't you make things so clear that somebody like Bob would say, oh, I'm convinced everything is there on the table. And again, I go back to the claim in Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to please God. God has not designed his truths so that we can take them into the laboratory and verify them, and everyone will fall down on their knees and be saved. In fact, if we looked at the last book in the Bible, Revelation, God piles proof on proof on proof on proof on proof to the world that he is in charge and he is pushing people to repent. And even though they hate what he is doing to them, it says they will not repent. So you have to take into account the hardness of the heart. So I don't know if that's more troubling to you or confusing to you. I hope it gives you some confidence that God is in the truth business, number one, but number two, that he calls for us to respond to him and his word uh, in faith as well. All right, let's talk again, we'll back to, get back to Augustus. And it's interesting, uh, Augustus, he's an emperor, so what he says goes, and what he tells people to do, they have to do. And so we see um, David, and, uh, David, <laughs> Joseph and Mary packing up their things, making the 90-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem because that's where both of them are originally from. That's their ancestral home, the city, city of David. By the way, we don't know that Mary had a donkey to ride on from Nazareth to Bethlehem. She might have. But we, best we can tell, Joseph and Mary were both from pretty common stock, and so they might have walked the whole way. In fact, it might have been why Mary gave birth in Bethlehem, even like soon after she got there, she might have been walking a, a, long, a long distance while she was uh, very pregnant. Now, it's interesting. Go back to Micah chapter 5 in the Old Testament, uh, a small little prophetic book written 700 years or so before uh, the time of Christ. <clears throat> in chapter 5 Micah comes right after Jonah and this was prophesied Micah 5 verse 2 but you O Bethlehem Ephrathah that's not this place over here um, not that Ephrathah but this was uh, a, a way to specify which Bethlehem there were actually in ancient um, Palestine there were actually a number of Bethlehems, and this was to uh, delineate the city of David from the rest of them. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. In fact, during Jesus' time, uh, when Jesus was born, there might only have been 300 to 1,000 people in Bethlehem. Yet a ruler of Israel, listen to this, a ruler of Israel whose origins, whose beginnings are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. This is God saying this. A ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. Now what's really cool is Augustus doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't know the living God. 
He has no interest in the living God, and yet he is taking orders from the living God. Say, what do you mean? Well, he declares a census. Doesn't know anything about Joseph. Doesn't know anything about Mary. Doesn't know anything about the coming Messiah. Doesn't know that both Joseph and Mary came through the line of David and that as a result of him requiring people to go back to their ancestral home for the census, that he is going to send Joseph and Mary there and she's going to come full term when she's there and give birth to this baby. Doesn't know that. Doesn't know that this baby's beginning or birth is going to be prophesied way back in the book called Micah hundreds of years early. Doesn't know that. You don't need to turn here, but just listen to this verse out of uh, Proverbs chapter... 21, verse 1. This is amazing. The king's heart, any king's heart, the king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. <laughs> I love that. That includes guys like Augustus who are in their minds simply running Rome as efficiently as they possibly can. And yet in God's mind, he moves him in such a way that a man and woman who live almost 100 miles to the north are going to make a dangerous trek south to Bethlehem. And lo and behold, she's going to give birth there to the Messiah. Now I want you to go to Mark chapter 10. We're done talking about the prideful king. <clears throat> Mark chapter 10. Verse 42, and we talked about this, uh, I think, a month ago or so. This was getting toward the end of Jesus' ministry, shortly before he went to the cross. A couple of his disciples were lobbying for key spots of power in Jesus' future kingdom that they knew were coming. And uh, one of them wants to sit on the right, one wants to sit on the left. As you can imagine, the other disciples, when they hear about these, these two lobbying for special positions behind their back, they were not too happy. And so Jesus calls them together, and he speaks to all of them. And he says this, verse 42. So Jesus called them together, and he said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, like Augustus. And officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. You who follow Jesus, among you, it will be different. You want to be a leader? Then you are going to be a servant. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. We should qualify this. It doesn't mean that they don't exercise authority but they don't exercise, an authority, exercise their authority with arrogance, pride, um, harshness. Why? Because they know that ultimately as a leader placed by God, their responsibility is to do whatever is in the best interest of their people. And sometimes their people know that and sometimes their people don't. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. Now, Jesus set the tone for that by virtue of how he came into the world. And he was 
He, he was a mighty king, right? I mean, both in terms of being a descendant of King David, whom he, who, in whose place he's going to rule and rule over kingdom forever. David was a powerful king, exercised his rule over his people. Jesus was going to be a powerful king, exercise his rule in the mode of David. But even beyond that, he, he's a powerful king by virtue of his position as God of the universe. Let me take you to Isaiah, a passage that we often read in, over Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9 <clears throat> predicted about the coming Messiah. Again, about 700 years before the time of Christ. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he, the government will rest on his shoulders. So he's obviously going to have clout, power. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. So we have a picture here of a, of a, a, a like a secular king almost. He's going to rule like King David did. But that by far is not the significant thing about Jesus' kingship. Let me take you back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, first four verses. <clears throat> what I'm trying to do is establish that Jesus was not just kind of like, like this pauper king, not this king that got pushed around hither and yon. And Jesus, by virtue of both his divine side and his human side, is going to be a, a king with... Um, great power, great clout. John chapter 1, in the beginning the, wor the word already existed and this word, word, is Greek word logos and John uses it to refer to Jesus throughout this first chapter. In the beginning the word was already, uh, already existed. Um, I, I shouldn't have used the word name Jesus because Jesus really just began at his birth. Uh, the Son of God, however, existed uh, throughout all eternity. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The Messiah became human, but his existence prior to receiving that body was eternal. There was never a time when he didn't exist. And so in the Old Testament days when Jonah was running away from his mission to Nineveh, the Son of God existed and was watching it all. When the people of Israel were fleeing their slavery and captivity in Egypt, the Son of God was watching and existed. In fact, even more, according to Scripture. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 10, again, first four verses. And Paul here is writing as a Jew. He says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. So as a Jew, he's talking about um, the ancient Jewish people in the wilderness fleeing from Egypt. 
all of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. If you remember the story, um, they had uh, this cloud in the sky to direct them and a pillar of fire uh, would do the same thing for them at night when they were on the move. All of, them, uh, all of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. You remember God parted the sea as they were trying to escape Pharaoh's army. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. It's talking about uh, it's kind of a spiritual reality here. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. Mainly he's saying they were, they were being led by Moses. Uh, he's telling them what to do as he gets words from God uh, to instruct them. And then he goes on to say this. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them. And that rock was whom? Who? Christ. You're like, wait a minute. I thought he had his start at Bethlehem. What? He had his human start at Bethlehem. God became flesh at Bethlehem, but God, the Son, always existed, made everything, oversaw everything. He was there in the wilderness with the people of Israel. He comes out of Mary's womb in Bethlehem, and now, well, really for nine months, the Word has taken on flesh. And so we, we speak about Jesus as the God-man. And he's not a hybrid. He's not half and half, half human, half man. He's fully God, fully man. King of the universe. And yet he did come as king of the universe. I mean, good grief, he doesn't even have a couple secret service guys with him. There's no entourage with him. There, there's nobody providing protection for him, nobody providing comms for him. There's nobody there to make sure he doesn't die as many newborns did. A life expectancy, a life expectancy if you're getting born in about 6 B.C., is not great. Medical care is not great. Prenatal care is not great. And yet Jesus just showed up without any messengers from heaven with him, without any protection. And the Bible says this is the picture of his great humility that he would just take on flesh. Philippians 3 again. We just looked at this a couple weeks ago. We have to look at it again. Philippians 3. <clears throat> beginning at verse 3. Uh, I'm sorry, Philippians 2 beginning of verse 3. Now, uh, the context here, first couple of verses in this chapter, the context is um, Paul is instructing, if you're a part of the body of Christ, you're, you're a brother or sister in a local church, he is telling you and I how we should relate to each other, how we get along with each other, um, how we think about each other, how we talk to each other. And so we're going to kind of drop in in the middle of that discussion, verse 3, don't be selfish don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. I've shared this story before, but I remember teaching this passage 30 years ago in a, in a church in, in, uh, outside of Chicago. I was doing an internship my last year in seminary. And uh, I taught this passage, and I had a guy in the class that was probably 20 years older than I was jumped me after the class and he goes it doesn't say that I'm like 
doesn't say what. It doesn't say think of others as better than yourselves. I'm like, um, I opened it up and I read it and I'm like, I think it does. <laughs> now, I had the NIV at the time and, and he had the King James. I said, well, what's the King James say? He goes, he wouldn't read. He just said, it doesn't say that. I'm like, it does. <laughs> what can you say when it's like black and white? But, but the, the lesson from that for me was when God tells us something that flies in the face of our instinctive human desire and, and ideas about how the world should run, uh, we have to kind of flee, don't we? I mean, how many of us really live like this? How many of us really think about our brothers and sisters in Christ like this? I think that you're better than me. I think that you're better than me. I, I think you're... No, I've got some things going for me that you don't have going for you. I mean, and yet this is, this is how... God wants us to think about each other in the body of Christ. To get a good look in the mirror and see both ourselves and Jesus in that mirror. So we get a clue about how, no, you're not all that much. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest but take an interest in others too. And now he shifts. And you hear us, if you've been at Keystone any length of time, you hear us talk again and again about how everything is connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Meaning not only does the gospel save us, but the gospel then teaches us how to live out our lives for the pleasure of God. And in some way, in some places in the New Testament, that's, that's implied. In some places, it's explicit. And this is one of those places where there's this explicit connection between Christ and his work and us and our work, meaning our living out of the call on our lives as followers of Jesus. He says, you must have, and again, don't disconnect that from what we've just read, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. And now, be careful here that you don't conclude from this that this means that Jesus stopped being God when he became human. It's not that but rather in the sense that Jesus laid aside his prominence, his position, his power uh, on the throne next to his father, um, his clout, um, exor the exercise of all that, he did not cling to that, but laid that aside and descended here to earth. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and for him, that meant being born as a human being. Now, th this should just radically transform how we think about ourselves as followers of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ, our position in the world, our attitude toward people who don't appreciate our gospel, as well as those who do.
And what I mean by that is Jesus humbled himself and became as lowly as he could possibly come, at least in, 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 in the framework of him being um, God, ruler of the universe. To, for him to take on flesh and stoop to come in among us was the, the most humble thing that he could possibly do. Because in doing so, he, he made himself vulnerable, vulnerable to the people that he made and gave them the opportunity to one day lay their hands on him and destroy him. You know, one of the things that, that's kind of happened in my lifetime is that people who follow Jesus have gained a measure of prominence in this nation. I remember when Jimmy Carter was elected president and his picture was splashed on the front page of Time, uh, the cover of Time magazine. I think, I think it, was, uh, it was called the Year of the Evangelical because Jimmy Carter was a, um, cast himself as an evangelical Christian. Interestingly enough, dig deep into what he believes and you'll find that's not the case. But there was... Jimmy Carter being elected president. There was the major moral majority at the time, and uh, evangelicals, prominent evangelicals, were being invited to the White House. They were given positions of power in the government and, uh, and other, uh, other places and roles in which they could have clout. And in my generation, at least, people became increasingly convinced that the wave of the future was uh, followers of Jesus who would be able to kind of write the ticket for our nation and our communities. If you've been watching the last 15 years, you realize that's not the case. And really, if we look at our Savior just in how he came, should that be any surprise to us? In fact, if you look in the mirror with me and see the kinds of people that he came to and the kinds of folks that he rescued, that should surprise us. It should not surprise us that people with power are probably not going to be the people of God anytime soon. Let me read in closing a passage out of 1 Corinthians, verse 26 starting at 26. It's interesting, if, if you study the <clears throat> history of Christian missions, uh, you will find a consistent track record of missionaries going primarily to poor people, going primary to, primarily to nobodies. Um, I watched in the probably 80s, 90s primarily, this, this seems to be a a trend that has run its course where there were mission organizations and, and groups that were targeting leaders, uh, key leaders in foreign countries and targeting the well-to-do and the people of power in countries around the world in the hopes that in leading them to Jesus Christ, some of them to Jesus Christ, that they would have enough clout that many others would follow suit. Because after all, how much clout do poor people unimportant nobodies have in making their case for Jesus. And yet this is what 
the word of God reminds us. Verse 26. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. And Jesus is our model for understanding ourselves in this equation. That when he took on flesh, he became the lowliest of the low. And there's a reason that most often it's poor people. It's unimportant people. It's uneducated people. It's people with messed up lives. It's people who are broken. It's people who don't have a prayer that come to Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, first of all, to rejoice that God came to you in Jesus. And also, if you're a Christian, to think about the people around you. And you might say, I think, I think one of the tendencies we have is to look at people whose lives are all together and say, man, he, she, make a good Christian. Probably not. I don't mean they can't. But you see, when we have our lives all together, we're not all of that, <laughs> we're not all that compelled by Jesus. There's a reason that many people come to Jesus in crisis. Nowhere else to turn. Nowhere, nobody else that cares. And so that person that you think doesn't have any interest in Christ will never have any interest in Christ. They're so hard against faith, religion, whatever you think. You just kind of write them off. I would suggest you write them in most firmly on your prayer list. They're probably far more right than the person who thinks everything's just going swimmingly in their lives. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that Jesus thought so much of your prospects that he was willing to become an ambassador like no other, left his scepter, put his crown on his throne, took his robe off, and he descended here to be born, to live a life, one that wasn't very cushy, and then let, to let the people that he created have their way with him, destroy him, crucify him. The good news is death could not hold him. And though he died, he not only lived again, he lives still. And in doing what he did, he made provision for you and for me to be redeemed from the wrath of God because we in and of ourselves are all sinners and under God's judgment. But because of what Jesus did, we can be set free from that. And I don't know about you, but I find that to be not just good news, 
but great news. Father, thank you for the majestic work that you did in clothing your son with flesh, becoming a, a human being like we are, so that he could live a life that's different from ours only in that he never sinned, and we all do, so that he could go to a cross and in dying not pay for his own sin, which we all will do, but pay for the sins of people like us. That if we turn to him in faith for the forgiveness of sins, that we can, instead of being your enemy, become your son, become your daughter, which has eternal implications. A life empowered here and an eternal life of joy given there after we die. That is indeed not just good news, but great news. Amen.